Now, today we are in Ecclesiastes in a series entitled Grasping at Wind, Searching for God. Now, it's going to take us many sermons to unpack that series title because today we are diving in to just one verse. The book of Ecclesiastes is polarizing. Usually people love it or they hate it. They tend to either appreciate beautiful word pictures that are inside of that book or they say it's too confusing Generally, if a person has been exposed to this work, they have some kind of feeling about it. It is a difficult book at first glance. The structure of the book can be confusing. It is not as easily laid out as a New Testament letter. Think of Ephesians. There's a clear demarcation of theological premise in the first three chapters, and then the next three, practical application. So simple, I appreciate that. In Ecclesiastes... It seems like the author's main point is constantly shrouded by proverbial sayings. You're trying to figure out what is he saying? Now, without digging into this book, it may seem to lack joy and hope. It could appear to be full of discouragement and to make life seem pointless. So why would someone write such a letter? Not many in that day would have had the means or resources to write. Not many were even literate. Writing in the ancient world was the endeavor of a person with means, with education, not just a regular citizen. Now, typically, throughout ancient history, people would write with an aim to teach, to record history, to change perspectives, to instruct, to preserve truth, to help others go the right way. So it seems odd that anyone would undertake such a costly and laborious task with a simple intent of venting about a meaningless life, which leads to a common sense conclusion. This was not the letter of a depressed person having a cathartic experience. So who took on the time, the effort, and the cost to pen this book? Let's take a look at the first verse. According to Ecclesiastes 1.1, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David King in Jerusalem. Now throughout the whole book, the author remains anonymous. We're never given a name. He's only known by a title, the preacher or teacher, Kohelet. And these descriptions in verse one give us an inkling of who he is, a son of David. So which son of David wrote this work? Which king in Jerusalem? And when did he write? Here's what I plan to convince you of this morning, that this is the letter of the wisest human who has ever walked this earth, who was full of the same temptations and committed sins just like many of us. Yet he knew God and truth from above, and he learned through failures. This is the letter of a man who had wisdom and yet lived unwisely, a letter designed to help others avoid the same mistake. This is the work of Solomon, son of David and Bathsheba. And this is Solomon's premise. People live wrongly, focused on what they see, what they want, what they hope for, and selfishly. And it's a cycle, wash, rinse, repeat. We think we see new things, but they're just repackaged old things. Think of this, America, not the first republic, Rome beat us to it. Competitive athletics like the Olympics have existed for millennia. Competition dating back to ancient Greece and Egypt. The wars we fight, even today, the things we fight over, the same. Now we use bombs, our ancestors use arrows and rocks. Same flinging, just further and bigger results. 
still fighting over resources, still fighting over land, still fighting over power and authority and autonomy. To underscore the repetitiveness of this world, let me share with you about John Bunyan. This man was a pastor in the mid or late 1600s. He was jailed for faithfully preaching the word without a license. He's best known as the author of the Pilgrim's Progress, which at one point in history was second in popularity only to the Bible. During the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, encounters a land with innumerable delights to the eyes. And John Bunyan described this land as having all the trappings of this world, and he labeled it Vanity Fair. As Christian spends time in Vanity Fair, he begins to realize it's not what he thought it was. The shiny veneers of the shops were hiding the dilapidated and decaying interiors. Like whitewashed tombs, they were pretty on the outside, yet empty on the inside. Now here is Bunyan's commentary on Vanity Fair. He said, Vanity Fair is a city where all things that are pleasing to the flesh are sold. It is a place where people can buy wealth, fame, power, and pleasure. But the things that are sold in Vanity Fair are fleeting and meaningless. They cannot bring true happiness or satisfaction. Vanity Fair is a place where people are easily distracted from their true purpose in life. They become obsessed with chasing after worldly goods and pleasures, and they forget about God and the celestial city. Christians must be careful not to be seduced by the temptations of Vanity Fair. They must remember that the things that are truly important are not for sale. They must keep their eyes on the celestial city and continue on their journey to God. Now, Bunyan wrote this work in jail in the late 1600s. Now, in the course of history, that's about 5,000 years after the creation of mankind, over 2,000, 2,500 years after the writing of Ecclesiastes. It's been 400 years since he wrote that, the setting of Pilgrim's Progress. Do we not have the same similarities in our world today? Are we not tempted by the trappings of this world? And yet, don't we know that the things of this world are temporary and fleeting? Yet we also get caught up in the pursuit of worldly goods, pleasures, and we forget what is ultimately and truly important. Such was the world in Bunyan's day. Such was the world in Solomon's day. And such is the world in our day. So in light of this great repeating cycle of sin and despair, how do we respond when the world spins the same today as it did yesterday, as it did 2,000 years ago? What is the point of this life if everything is truly vanity, if all is but a mist or a vapor? Now, the author of Ecclesiastes answers these hard questions. Though if you read this book without careful consideration, you will miss the nuances and the wisdom that it has to offer. This morning, we're going to focus on the author and the nature of wisdom literature. Next week, we will dive into the motto or the repeating phrase of this book. So before we talk about authorship, let's be clear about the nature of wisdom literature. It is a type or a genre of literature in the Bible. You see the biblical genres on the screen. Most scholars break down the biblical genres as follows. You have history and narrative like Genesis, First and Second Kings. Anytime you get a list of kings, you know that you're in narrative. You have the law, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You have poetry, like the Psalms, where we've been, where we will be in the new year again. Poetry can also include wisdom books, but don't get confused. Sometimes things cross-pollinate between genres. 
You have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the minors. You have the wisdom books, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. You have New Testament gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have the New Testament letters, like the epistles of Peter and Paul and John. You have New Testament Acts. That is the one singular account of the story of the early church. And you have New Testament Revelation, which is the culmination of God's redemptive plan. Now, within all of that, Ecclesiastes, finding itself within the wisdom genre, is often viewed as the pinnacle of wisdom literature in the Bible. So why does genre matter? Well, it's so that we establish our minds on the particular set of interpretive rules for the text. We need to have proper hermeneutics. I know it's a nerdy term. It's not what we sit around and talk about every day at the coffee shop. But recognizing genre respects the divine authorship choices from God and the authorial intent because the author chose to write in a certain way. In other words, think about this. When we recognize the proper genre of biblical literature, we do three things. First, we acknowledge God's choice for his words and style. When we tell the difference between law, prophecy, or wisdom, we acknowledge that God chose in that particular area how the author would write. Second, we affirm that the author wrote that way on purpose. We affirm the style so we can have a better understanding. Prophecy is not the same as a New Testament command. Third, then we're armed with the appropriate hermeneutical principles to apply God's word correctly. That's why we cannot just pick up our Bibles anywhere we want, start reading and say, I can apply it. It's a good thing to pick up your Bible and read. But if you want to apply it, you need to be diligent to study. So what is wisdom literature? Wisdom literature is marked by reasonable conclusions of the observable world upon which the reader may guide life's challenges and relationships toward prosperity. That is a statement you can hold on to, but that is not a statement that you have to keep. It's just to try to be helpful to capture what wisdom literature is. It moves the reader toward fruitfulness, toward blessing. Wisdom literature helps us navigate life towards a good end. How can you identify wisdom literature as distinct from narrative in the Old Testament? There's a couple of distinctions here. You will find the Hebrew word chokmah 85 times in only three books. It occurs 149 times. Over 57% it occurs in just three books. So an emphasis on wisdom. Wisdom literature will orbit around the problems of real life and will give us practical theology to live out godliness in a complex and calculating world. Now, Israel was distinct. They collected wisdom writings. Most cultures did have wisdom writings, but not the way that Israel did. Now, generally, the books of Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are considered to be the wisdom literature books of the Old Testament. Broader, throughout the scope of history, scholars have broken down the Old Testament into three parts. So the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, you have the law, the Torah, you have the prophets, the Nevi'im, and you have the writings, the Ketuvim. Now the writings contain books like Job and the Psalms, and yes, Ecclesiastes. It's easy to recognize the laws, the first five books, and the prophets, 
And then you have these books that just don't fit neatly everywhere else, and those are the writings. Now, sometimes the genres do overlap because wisdom and prophecy contain poetry and they intermingle with each other, but they are still classified by their broader themes. So within wisdom or within the writings, wisdom literature is marked by the use of proverbial sayings. We'll see that it's very common, but proverbial sayings, they are found in other books, just helping you to get a grasp of wisdom literature here. Now, it may be said that every book in the Bible, not just those few three, contain wisdom literature. One Old Testament scholar notes that wisdom is a thread that runs through every part. And why? Because God is wise. So all of his word is wise. How is wisdom literature different from other Old Testament genres? Well, it doesn't focus on narrative or stories. The imperatives or the commands, they're given in a in a cooler tone. It's not as forceful as thou shalt. It's a reflective tone. Statements are made with authority, but less of a push compared to other commands in the New Testament or the Old Testament law. There is a prominent use of Hebrew poetry in wisdom literature compared to other genres. You will notice in your Bible, if you're open to Ecclesiastes right now, in, in chapter one, most of your Bibles will have a lot of white space around the words. That is intentional because they're trying to match the meter and the rhyme of the Hebrew poetry. They're trying to emphasize the parallelism or the rhyming of ideas that exists in the original language. What special role does wisdom literature have in God's special revelation? Well, here's a quote I think that will help you understand wisdom literature. This is from Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar. He said, in the wisdom books, the tone of voice and even the speakers have changed. The blunt thou shalt or thou shalt not of the law and the urgent thus saith the Lord, the prophets, are joined now by the cooler comments of the teacher and the often anguished questions of the learner. Where the bulk of the Old Testament calls us simply to obey and to believe, this part of it summons us to think hard as well as humbly, to keep our eyes open to use our conscience and our common sense and not to shirk from the most disturbing questions. And with all of that, what are some challenges that we face with wisdom literature? Well, for one, translating the book. You, I told you to take a look at Ecclesiastes 1. If you turn a page backwards and look at Proverbs 31, which is also one of the wisdom books, you see that translation from English, they are doing their absolute best but it does not look the same as what it looks like in Hebrew. Scholars agree Hebrew poetry is actually the most difficult genre to translate because the context is so diverse and good translation involves interpretation and then context matters when it comes to interpretation. And we are very far from the context of ancient Israel. It demands abstract and critical thought. Some are sayings and they're simple and others require us to think deeply and broadly and they open up more questions than they do provide answers. For example, the book of Proverbs contains compact sayings with profound truth, but the density of those compact sayings can make it very difficult for us to grasp the profound truth for those sayings with the original language and culture. In other words, when you make things compact, it can actually make it more difficult to interpret when you're not the, the primary culture. Think about this one. In Proverbs 10, 5, uh, it reads, He who gathers in summer is a son who acts insightfully, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. 
Now, unless you have some culture or knowledge of history or culture, it's just a pithy saying. Gather, and that's good, and you rest, and that's bad. That's what we take from it today. But with studied nuance, you could understand that the nature of harvest time mattered. The importance of responsibility and planning mattered. Showing genuine care for others matters. Wisdom literature can be what we would think of as philosophical. For example, we'll read later on in this series a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, the day of one's death is better than his birth. So we'll be left with a question, how can this be? Or follow-up question, how does that relate to the gospel of Jesus and why does this matter? Our struggle, we, wanna, we tend to want commands. We want imperatives. Tell me how to live. Give me the promises of scripture that I know God is going to fulfill. We're not asking to think. Wisdom literature gives us principles, truisms, observational reflections. Here's another one. Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child according to his way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, how many of you have heard that? I think every parenting blog ever has quoted that, every Christian parenting blog anyways. The thing is, that is not a clear promise for redemption when you teach a child truth. Rather, it is a warning. Be careful of the way that you set your child's course because it will have long-standing impact on their life. It's very different than preserving faith. Still a call to be faithful, but the promise isn't there. It's a principle. Therefore, Christian God-fearing parents should set their child's course upon God's way, but there is no guarantee in themselves that the child will remain on that way. Wisdom literature is filled with Hebrew poetry and a type of rhyming of ideas, parallelism, that focuses more on the meter and the, the cadence of Hebrew language than on the rhyming of words. It is very hard to illustrate to you during a sermon. I feel like I need Grant to do a little cadence here, but when you read the Proverbs. When you read proverbial sayings in Ecclesiastes, there is a meter and a cadence to it in Hebrew that we do not get in English. It does not translate to us. But those sayings allowed the original readers to memorize well. Just like we memorize catchy songs, right? I'm not going to ask you which songs you memorize or about how many of you know Taylor Swift's every album. That's not a dig. That's just truth, right? Come on, so you guys go to, it's okay. But if you memorize that, you can understand how Israel could memorize these Proverbs. Give you some examples here. Proverbs 11:2. you get this rhyming of ideas. When arrogance comes, then comes disgrace. But with the meek is wisdom. In the Hebrew, it's da-da, 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 da-da. Doesn't work in the English. Same thing in Proverbs 11:6. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be captured by their own desire. A little more meter and rhyme to that one, but it's the same. The rhyming of ideas, the righteousness on the front end, and the treacherous ones on the back end. Proverbs 15, 27. You have the greedy who don't prosper, and then those who aren't greedy prosper. He who's greedy for gain troubles his own house. He who hates gifts of bribery will live. You have this back and forth rhyming of ideas, not rhyming of words. Now, also in the wisdom literature, you'll consistently see that there's really no saga of narrative. There's no longstanding uh, pictures of drama. 
that you have in Ruth or Nehemiah. And it's not going to be propositional like the New Testament epistles. You're not going to get a how-to tutorial in wisdom books. And that makes it hard for us. So what principles should we bear in mind as we're reading and interpreting wisdom literature? Well, here's something. We're familiar with many Proverbs in English. These are the compact sayings, right? You've heard actions speak louder than words. Rome wasn't built in a day. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Ah, that one's false. There are so many more. Think about all the ones you might know or your family uses that you're familiar with. Our culture has so many, but I can guarantee if you came from another culture or you go into another culture with these sayings, they would not translate and make sense and vice versa. There are times when I'm with pastors abroad and I want to use a simple idiom or English uh, uh, parable and my supposed simplicity ends up taking five times longer to explain that little compact saying because I made it less compact. It doesn't work. It doesn't translate. Similarly, if we're to understand the wisdom literature of scripture, these compact, simple sayings that were common to the day of writing in the culture of when it was written, but less common to us now, we have to bring some principles to bear. There are four key principles that I would offer to you to interpret wisdom literature. First, we need to understand the ancient Near East context in which this genre arose. So ancient Near East included a royal court, kings, subjects. Wisdom was for the court of kings and dignitaries. Wise sayings went with wise people. The general population marveled at the wisdom of wise men. Second, we need to understand the role of the teacher and the teacher-student relationship. Across the Proverbs, you hear my son. In, in Ecclesiastes, you'll hear that similarly. There is a, a context of teaching that goes that is involved in wisdom literature. Sometimes that teaching is going to be through negative examples. Sometimes it'll be through positive examples. And sometimes it will teach through questions. The constant intent of the wisdom books is to push the reader or the hearer to think about life appropriately and to draw the listener toward God. Third, we need to understand the role of the wise man in Old Testament Israel. This was a very prominent role that was on par with the prophet and the priest. Yet we don't often talk about this. The wise man was active in royal courts and influential to the king's decisions, as well as to the lifestyle of everyday people. In Israel, wisdom had a history of being regarded very highly. Israel uniquely sat under the headship of the Almighty, so the Hebrew understanding of wisdom was not just men being clever, but the honor of a person having been gifted with wisdom from above to navigate the realities of life in this world. When I say that the wise man was on par with the prophet and the priest, we got to remember the priest represented man to God. That's the priest's role to interpret the law of God to man. The prophet speaks for God to the people. The wise man gives practical counsel and insight for life uh, experiences and decisions. And finally, Jesus himself is portrayed as priest, prophet, and king. And yes, as a wise man. Fourth and finally, we need to use our knowledge of the parallelism of Hebrew poetry. And there's a quick side note. We're going to go into some of this today because we need to. But go back and listen to Jeff's first message or two from the Psalms for a more extensive uh, amount of categories of Hebrew poetry. 
you will be blessed by, by looking at that. But we need to pay attention to the types of Hebrew poetry that are used within wisdom literature. So to start us off with, we have antithetical uh, parallelism. This word is, uh, that we look for is but. These are contrasting, wicked versus white righteous. So here in Proverbs 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So you see that key word but contrasting wicked and righteous. We have synonymous parallelism. The key use of synonyms or like phrases. So Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. These are very similar things. The glory of God and the work of his hands, but they're used independently on purpose to highlight what is being said. We have synthetic parallelism. Uh, the key there is to uh, carry on and build intensity. Let me make sure we're on the right slide because my eyes are not that good. Proverbs 26, I'm ahead. I went, I went one too fast. Uh, oh no, I'm right. I don't know how you read this every Sunday, Jeff. Man, your eyes are so much better than mine. Synthetic parallelism. So they carry on or build intensity. You see that here in Proverbs 26. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself also be like him. But then what's said? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So wait, what do you do? Do you answer? Do you not answer? You need wisdom to figure it out. You'll also see comparison in the wisdom literature books. So these are uh, using keywords like or as. Uh, it evaluates two ideas together. So you should be able to see Proverbs 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. Are those pleasant things? I know some of you drink apple cider vinegar. My wife makes me do it sometimes too to be healthy when I'm getting sick. Do you sip it like it's delicious? No, I don't know anyone who does. You gulp it as fast as you can because it is bitter. How about smoke to the eyes? Kenny's always smoking burgers and meats and all these things. It doesn't matter how tough you are. Smoke to the eyes, it's gonna burn, it's gonna make you cry. That's the reality. So is the sluggard to those who send him. So the lazy person to the one who he's responsible to has that bitter taste in his mouth and the stinging in his eyes. We also have structural parallelism. That's the structure of sentences and paragraphs used in a certain manner to convey key thoughts. And this is where the schools of Talbot and Masters argue incessantly, is it a chiasm, is it a chiasm? I'll let you be the judge. We know where he stands. <laughs> so you have a structure there that goes something like this, A, B, B, A. It builds up to a thought like a hill and comes back down. The example here in Psalm 76, you have God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. Another way you could look at that, God is known in Judah, in Israel, his name is great. That's the way it looks in the Hebrew. Another way of structural parallelism is acrostics, working through the order of the Hebrew alphabet, where every section will begin the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It would be too big of a slide to show you Psalm 119, but that's where you can go if you want to see an example of that. We also have consequential parallelism, if-then statements. If you do this, then this will happen. 
Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. That is an if then. Those who are proud are an abomination to Yahweh and they will be punished. Now, when reading wisdom literature, we need to take careful notice of following items here. There will be many earthy tones. Illustrations from nature will abound. Agriculture will abound. The natural world will provide many lessons in the wisdom books. We'll have repeated idioms like, listen, my son, or here in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or everything under the sun. There will be specialized meaning of words in the wisdom books. You have the judgment of righteousness or the mishpat of tzedakah that focuses on the rewards or the outcome of righteousness, not just on this moral equality or quality of righteousness, a focus on prudence, being sensible and wise, a focus on using discernment and discretion, making your plans with carefully thought out purposes. We need to give it time. When you're reading wisdom books, it can be hard to grasp the intended meaning. It can be hard to bridge those idioms and those illustrations with application to today. Those general principles, because they're often not commands or promises, it can be difficult to speak boldly about application principles, like the passage that I mentioned earlier about set a child on his way. There are preachers that take bold stances on either side. The thing is, it's not a promise. There are promises in scripture. That's not one of them, but it becomes difficult. And so many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have sat in sermons hearing that as if it's a promise. It's dangerous when we don't approach God's word the right way. Proverbs and proverbial sayings in scripture are not promises. They are principles. And the expected outcomes could still have exceptions. Here's an example. In Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You have this expectation that every dog returns to his vomit. Do you know a dog who didn't return to its vomit? Because it could exist, right? Does every dog do it? I don't know. Maybe most do. But can you say unequivocally that every dog ever has returned to its own vomit? You don't. You can't say it. It's a generalism. It's a truism. A fool who repeats his folly. Is every fool guaranteed to repeat folly even? No. Sometimes their folly is so great that they cease to live because of their folly and they don't get to go back to it. So see, these are truisms. They're not promises, but they're expected outcomes that could still have exceptions. So these truisms represent principles and the whole intent is to instruct our hearts. Now, how can wisdom literature benefit the believer today? Wisdom literature is an antidote for people living in a fantasy world, for people living in a theoretical world. Wisdom literature is philosophy and brings reality to bear. It's a type of abstract thinking that yields conclusions for functional everyday theology. Wisdom literature causes people to work out the product of how they're living. If you keep living this way for 50 years, what will be the outcome of your life? Wisdom literature demands the formation of convictions and conclusions for living life. 
Such examples of, of wisdom literature bring parables to teach us and sometimes painfully to respond with faith and repentance. James 3.17 tells us of more benefits from godly wisdom, that it can produce things in us like a peaceable and gentle spirit, that it can keep us open to reason, that wisdom can enlarge our hearts to be full of mercy, to produce good fruits, to help us to be impartial and sincere in what we say and do. The purpose of wisdom literature is to ultimately make one wise, to convey wisdom in our day-to-day -day living, and to set us on a trajectory of life that leads to ultimate blessing and ultimate prosperity. Now that purpose makes the content and the speakers very interesting when it comes to wisdom literature. We should then be drawn to work out those beautiful principles that God has provided to us. Here's just a sampling of some of the topics that are addressed in the wisdom books. Death and dying. What about when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Satisfaction that eludes the wealthy. Contentment and a materialistic cosmology. A sense of emptiness and meaningless of life without God. Those are just a few. Now with all of that, if I've lost you there, we'll come back to little things here and there over the series. But I want there to be a strong foundation of what wisdom literature is so we can understand this book better. But now we have to move to authorship. This is how we're going to close our time out this morning with just the one verse. Ecclesiastes chapter one, the words of the preacher or Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So what options do we have for authorship of this book? And why does it matter? Well, some scholars at very notable seminaries across the United States take a stance of the author not being Solomon. They take the stance of the author remaining nameless as some other person, uh, because in this book, we only get the name Kohelet or Kohelet, and that's translated preacher or teacher. There is no name of Solomon in this book. That name is actually only used in this book. It's not seen elsewhere in scripture. So without a clear identification, how can we begin to deduce authorship here in this work? And what other potential authors would have the credentials noted here in verse one? So if not Solomon, was it one of the other 18 sons that David had that are named in the Bible? He could have had more, but the other 18 that are named? Some scholars even think it was an imposter pretending to be Solomon that wrote this book. Let's start with that last thought. This is my commentary here, but I think that too many supposed Bible scholars hold not just to that anonymous authorship, but that imposter one, holding that neither, uh, neither the author was actually king or actually a son of David. And I think that's an erroneous, erroneous thing. Let me ask, why would a liar or an imposter be included in the canon? Why would an imposter be the unnamed author of the seminal book of wisdom in God's word? Holding to an imposter for authorship displays a lack of intentional study. It, it displays a willingness to let go of any real meaning in this book. Now, the author describes himself, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. As I noted, David had many sons, 19 are named in the Bible. But did you know that only one of his sons was king in Jerusalem? 
Solomon was David's only son to reign as king in Jerusalem. And sometimes, yes, son meant descendant. But the primary sense of that word is the immediate offspring. Further, did you know that no other son of David authored anything in the Bible? Not even a thought? Meanwhile, in scripture, we're told that Solomon authored 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. So he did a bit of writing. Further, consider the nature of wisdom. To be wise, one not only needs to know what to do, to have knowledge, but they also have to have the experience of applying that knowledge, backing it up. We all know the testimony of Solomon when he was appointed king, how God granted him wisdom above all others. We know that Solomon not only practiced his wisdom, but he also lived apart from it, given his example of pursuing so many wives and concubines and being led astray and worshiping false gods and idols. Solomon violated every category that a king was supposed to be watchful over. If you read in Deuteronomy 17, he's not supposed to have too many horses. He's not supposed to have too many wives. He's not supposed to have too much gold and silver. Otherwise, his heart is going to turn away. Solomon had all those things. Too many horses, too many wives, too much gold. Now, there's the trouble that we don't have a record in Scripture of Solomon's repentance. Or do we? I would offer that this book, Ecclesiastes, is proof of the repentance of the wisest man, wrought with folly and shame, who at the end of his days had returned to Yahweh in humility and recognized that his chasing of the material world led him astray. So ask yourself, who would have a more definitive outlook on life than the wisest man to have ever lived who also experienced life apart from God's wisdom. Now, there are some objections to Solomonic authorship. Why isn't Solomon's name mentioned in the book? Well, it's impossible to say for sure, but there are some plausible explanations. For example, for somebody to admit to such serious sin in his life in ancient times, and Solomon had a lot of sin, that would have taken supreme humility to write down his name. It would have been public knowledge, though. He didn't need to acknowledge publicly his sin and shame because the whole nation knew of it. Solomon could have easily been anonymous because it was an act of contrition. His name was shamed. His name didn't hold the same amazingness that it did when he was gifted with wisdom. Now it held the recognition of stumbling and failing and worshiping false gods. Could also be that he's not hiding his name, but that he's emphasizing his message. He didn't want his name to get in the way of the message that he's providing. That if there's any good to come from his failure, it is going to be the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, why is there no record of Solomon's repentance? Now, Ecclesiastes is not just the record, it's the proof. Toward the end of his reign, Solomon knew that he had greatly dishonored God with judgment ahead. There were constant judgments that were given to Solomon, to the nation of Israel for his own sin. Like his father David, not only was his sin in full public view, but the condition of his heart seems to be what led to that sin being exposed in Ecclesiastes. So there is no written record in scripture of his repentance. We do have record of David's repentance. But I would offer this, that similarly to Jonah, lacking a biblical record of repentance does not mean 
that he did not repent. Now, some have an issue with the statements of wealth and wisdom in chapter two of Ecclesiastes. If you reject Solomon's authorship, you have to do uh, some weird imposter stuff to make it look like whoever's impersonating him had some knowledge of great wealth and great wisdom, but there was no one greater in wealth and in wisdom in that day. Solomon's life is placed into focus so that we would pay attention to his mistakes. That impersonation theory then casts doubt upon God's word. To pretend is to mislead or to deceive. So why would an author of the book of the Bible want to do that? Now, the last thing here in terms of the difficulty of acknowledging the authorship, there is an advanced wisdom and intellect in the communication here in Ecclesiastes. This is not a simple book. Few people in history would be capable to compose a work, period, especially at that time. The internal evidence would cause us to at least ask, if not Solomon, then who could have had that capacity, that capability to write in such a way? There was no unknown, unidentified contender. So as you look at the book, you got to approach it one of two ways. You either say, these are the musings of an exceptional mind who is groaning and unhappy with life, or you say, this is a theistic apologetic. And what I mean by that is this, a theistic apologetic forces a secular mind to face the logical ends of their cosmology true reality of life under the sun, vanity of vanities. That, that is the proper view of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes wasn't written from a foxhole in the heat of battle and the struggle of life. It is filtered, analyzed, tested with time and ready to communicate powerful and reasoned arguments that drive to a very specific and profound conclusion. Ecclesiastes doesn't fit the journaling of an old man who's just racked with discouragement and despair. It is, however, autobiographical, meaning that it draws upon the wisdom of an experienced man and seeks to warn others to not fall prey to the hopeless materialism that he ended up abandoning. So there's purpose to his negativism. There's purpose to his pessimism. Those darker tones are intentional and it's to drive man to the necessary ends of his philosophy of life. It's not a pretty picture, life apart from God. But our author doesn't leave man dangling over that precipice of despair. He drives his argument toward a sovereign God who gives the entire context of life meaning and significance. We are to enjoy the life that God has given us. As Solomon looked backward on his life, it's put on display throughout Ecclesiastes for our review and evaluation, and it should be a warning. You've heard this, this American saying or proverb, hindsight is always 2020. You guys know that one. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is giving us the 2020 autobiographical view of his life. From that perspective, he's looking back upon his life, illustrating where he went wrong. Not only did Solomon realize his sin in turning life into the pursuit of wealth, human wisdom, women, building projects, but he also reveals the hardship and the injustice that that philosophy of life brought upon the common person in his kingdom. Much of Ecclesiastes could actually be a record of Solomon growing and realizing that his rule had become oppressive to many people in his kingdom. He also had firsthand knowledge of how other kingdoms 
and their rulers ruled and reigned. He would have been acquainted with oppressive leadership that others would not have had a view of. Within, within the book itself, the autobiographical profile, that points directly to Solomon. He had wisdom, wealth. He reigned in Jerusalem. That title points to him. The genre of wisdom literature points to him, parallels his portions in Proverbs. The moral journey of life fits his journey of life. Solomon's role as author and teacher of his people fits the description here. If we're to be faithful historians, we must affirm that Solomon was the only son of David who reigned in Jerusalem in a season of prosperity with the United Kingdom. The only kings to reign from Jerusalem were Saul and David, and they cannot be considered a son of David. So there's no other time period for this to occur. No other author could have had the means and the backdrop to view all that Solomon viewed. The description of the author having fantastic wealth and great wisdom, that matches the historical picture of who Solomon was. So Solomon is the essential author of Ecclesiastes. Both internal and external historical evidence overwhelmingly points in that direction. So the setting of Ecclesiastes is towards the conclusion of his reign just prior to his death. Now here's our key takeaway for this morning. God sovereignly worked to have Solomon, the wisest man in history, pen a unique and thought-provoking work that challenges the reader to consider the reality of life apart from God. Knowing that Solomon penned this work gives us an encouragement. True wisdom brings us back to God. An unknown author with an unknown story brings us no confidence in God. However, knowing that Solomon wrote this work instructs our heart in several ways. And here are your key thoughts for today. Solomon knew God, and yet even though he had been gifted wisdom, it did not produce righteousness. Second, wisdom and knowledge don't equal zeal for righteousness and truth. They're not the same thing. Third, in wisdom, which was divinely gifted, Solomon came to the end of himself. He came to the end of a material and physical world and realized that without God, it was all meaningless. Fourth, Solomon is the perfect proof that you could have the greatest of human wisdom, and yet when you come before God, you still have empty hands. Fifth, any other author produces a weaker effect. The timeless truth would still remain, but the experiential power, the providence of God to use Solomon showcases God's perfect wisdom to bring him up, to bring him down, and to restore him again. Six, God sovereignly orchestrated world events. You think about the appointment of Solomon over king, as king over Israel, being given as a son, a second son to David and Bathsheba, being gifted with wisdom and riches, how they taught incredible lessons to him. Both David and Bathsheba taught Solomon lessons and wisdom before he was even gifted it. And then at the very end of his days, he writes this letter, this book, to say vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is God's sovereignty on display because it drives us to the seventh point. Yes, all is vanity apart from God. That's why 
Solomonic authorship matters. This preacher here in Ecclesiastes 1.1 is Solomon, the man who was gifted matchless wisdom and who will portray the reality of life under the sun and will confront the mind of the materialistic person. So that's where we're going next week. I know it was a lot today. It was like a class. I understand. But without a proper understanding of wisdom literature and a recognition of Solomon as the author, the book does not hold any special meaning. They're just timeless truths and pithy sayings. But if we clearly understand what wisdom literature is, if we understand that Solomon is the author, there are immense truths to be found in this book that will have a profound impact on daily life today, in this time, in this age. And so I want you to take a moment now, as we close here, you see the list up there. Pick one of those that it's impactful for you in some way, a challenge or an encouragement. I want you to take a moment, think and dwell upon that. Ask God for help to enlarge your mind, to think during this series about philosophical thoughts that are bigger than just what you're getting for lunch today. Philosophical thoughts about what is your life going to look like in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Philosophical thoughts about why, why does wisdom matter and how can I get more of it? Take a moment to pray and then I'll close us in a word of prayer. God, we come before you today. So much information being shared. So many thoughts about Hebrew literature. <clears throat> the nature of the wisdom books, the nature of how you comprise the Old Testament very purposefully, every part serving a purpose. And we see even the connections today when we read in the New Testament about every part of the body fulfilling its intended purpose for the good of the whole. May we consider wisdom literature in that vein. It is a piece and a part of the Old Testament scriptures that is immensely important for us today. May we not be scared of tough sayings. May we not think it's too complicated and not want to dive in, but may we receive the challenge of trying to understand why you foreordained, why you planned to bring about wisdom literature in the exact time, in the exact moments that you did. To understand why you had Solomon write this book with everything that he had experienced, with everything he had lived through, why did you choose him? May our hearts and our minds be enlarged to think about your incredible wisdom in your perfect timing. And as we consider the book of Ecclesiastes, Father, this is the prayer moving forward, that we would not be those who reduce it to discouragement, despair, depression, uh, the things that draw us down and think that this book offers no hope. Instead, may you help us to see that life apart from you does have no hope, but that life with you has eternal and everlasting hope. May we see that message here in Ecclesiastes over the course of this series. Continue to help our hearts to worship you this morning as we sing praises and songs to your name and help us to think bigger than ourselves about your incredible purposes and your eternal purposes of drawing sinners to repentance and making us a part of your eternal family. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.